Our associate pastor candidate, Devin Rook, is going to give our message this morning. We are continuing um, our series on the gospel origins. Um, we did not let Devin just pick his favorite message he's shared before and bring it with him for this weekend. We made him write a new one, you know, because we're mean that way. Um, but uh, just a little bit about Devin. Devin graduated from Iowa State University, which makes him a cyclone if you're interested in college sports like I am. Uh, he graduated from Iowa State University with a BS in both management and marketing. Um, and then he worked as an assistant store director for Hy-Vee Supermarket. Hy-Vee is a supermarket chain in the Midwest. Um, it's actually a fairly large chain. They have over 280 locations. Um, and again, it's he, he was uh, an assistant store director in one of those stores. Um, he eventually uh, felt the call to ministry and he entered Western Seminary's distance program. Many of you are at least a little bit familiar with Western Seminary because we've had a number of Western Seminary presidents over the years come and share a message on Sunday morning. Uh, the distance program through Western Seminary is the same program that Brett Reisman is currently in. Um, and so Devin is scheduled to graduate from there in May. Uh, he's been a student pastor for over three years at two different churches. He is currently a student pastor at First Reformed Church in Orange City, Iowa. Uh, and that church is very similar in size to us. Uh, and so he is familiar uh, being a part of a church and church staff like ours. Now, um, I'm gonna let Devin share a little bit about himself and his family when he comes up here. Uh, and I know all of you are wondering, but I am not going to tell you who his favorite NFL team is, okay? Uh, maybe he will, we'll see. But Devin, come on up. Will you please welcome Devin for me? Well, thank you, Pastor Chuck, and good morning, church. It is good to be with you this morning. I am here this morning with uh, my wife, Abby, and we are excited to be with you, the opportunity to worship with you, to be able to share in God's word with you this morning. And, uh, you know, we just have to say we are so grateful for the kindness and the hospitality and the warmth and just quite frankly the love that we've experienced this weekend. It's been kind of a whirlwind for us and uh, uh, first time we've done something like this, but it, it has just been so great to get to know some of you and the staff and been so gracious and loving to us. So thank you for that. A little bit about us. You can see there's a family picture of the four of us. Uh, uh, and we have two little kiddos back home in Sioux Center, Iowa, where we're from. Our daughter uh, on, the, on the right there, her name is uh, Harlow. And she will be two here in just a couple of weeks. And then our son, Ames, who's actually just over three months old now. So uh, he's pretty new yet. Um, but his middle name is Isaiah, named after the book of the Bible from which we're going to be reading this morning. Um, and as I mentioned, we live in Sioux Center, Iowa, which is in the northwest corner of the state. Uh, Abby has been there her entire life uh, in the Sioux City area. About, if you know Sioux Falls, Omaha, those are two bigger cities. It's about halfway between those. Um, and then I moved to Sioux City, Iowa when I was 14. I am a PK, a pastor's kid, so uh, we moved from West Michigan, one Dutch pocket to another in Northwest Iowa when I was uh, uh, 14. Um, and as Pastor Chuck said, then I went off to Iowa State, graduated from there, worked uh, in retail grocery for a while and uh, then started seminary. Uh, 
So now we live in Sioux Center, Iowa, where my wife is the uh, HR director for our county. So she oversees HR for all the different county departments. It's over 150 employees, and she is a department of one. So it's, it's a big job. Um, she does a great job there. Uh, I will wrap up my degree program, as Pastor Chuck said, here in May. Looking forward to graduating. It's a five-year program, so it, it, it gets a little long, but I'm, it's been great. It's been fantastic, and I'm excited to, to finish that. Uh, I also work part-time for Words of Hope, which many of you may be familiar with, and is actually how I first got connected with this church. I had the opportunity to travel to Turkey with a group of people, including Pastor Chuck, uh, a couple years back, uh, and it was just uh, an awesome awesome experience to uh, go and share the gospel with uh, uh, Christians in a place where uh, it is not easy to be a Christian. Uh, that is a very quick introduction to who I am. Um, I've probably left you hanging long enough because I know you're wondering. I'm a cheesehead. I'm a Green Bay Packers fan. So I like the clapping. I like the clapping. Um, so if you didn't hear anything else, at least you heard that. Uh, that's a quick introduction into who I am, but I want to make sure we have an ample amount of time to uh, spend in God's Word because that's really the reason we're here this morning. So would you join me in a short prayer as we turn our hearts towards Him? Heavenly Father, we pray that you will open the door of our hearts this morning to receive you, to receive your faithful promise, your wonderful gift, and your everlasting joy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our scripture passage from this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And our scripture reading is Landon Buckingham. So Landon, you may go ahead and make your way to the podium. And as he does so, I'd ask that the rest of you stand and face the center of the room. Uh, we read uh, scripture uh, at the center of the room to remind us that it is central to our lives. And we stand because we believe that it is the authoritative word of God. Landon, whenever you are ready, please go ahead and read from Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatest of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Thank you, Landon. You may all be seated. Now this series is titled The Gospel Origins. And we are in our second Sunday of Advent, this season of anticipation in which we are anticipating the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. As Pastor Chuck said last week, the Christmas story is an origin story of the gospel. And the question to be answered was, how did we get here? And Pastor Chuck taught on Genesis 3, the curse, the fall of Adam and Eve, that event that precipitated the need for the Christmas story, the need for a Savior. This week, we will seek to answer the question, how does God respond? We know now why the Savior is necessary, and we know what happened. But how is that response put into motion? And it begins 
with God's promise, a promise made 600 years before the birth of our Savior. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. The first half of verse 6 is the promise, the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. And in the spirit of origin stories and the origin stories of superheroes, for all of you Marvel Avengers fans, this is like Iron Man and the blueprint that he shows, that Tony Stark shows uh, in the cave to Dr. Yinsen, his fellow prisoner, the, the very first Iron Man suit. So the curse was that he has been taken captive and is now being held in captivity, but his response is building this very first Iron Man suit. Now, on a quick side note, the reason I use Iron Man is because that's my wife's favorite superhero, though I'm not sure how much of that really has to do with the character so much as the astonishing good looks of one Mr. Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> but anyways, Isaiah makes three short but vital statements about this promise. And the first is for to us a child is born. This is a statement of God's faithful assurance. It is the assurance that God's promise will indeed come to pass. And the first statement is a reiteration of the covenant that God has made with David. If we look back quickly to 2 Samuel uh, in chapter 7, the Lord, through the, prophet, I, or through the prophet Nathan, excuse me, inaugurates what's known as the Davidic covenant in which God promises to establish his line forever and his reign forever through the line of David. But now throughout the line of David, there would be many kings and many of these kings, just like us, would give in to their desires, their own cravings, their own uh, desire of power, and this is the curse. Now, one of those kings was named King Ahaz, and just like Nathan was a prophet in the time of David, Isaiah was a prophet in the time of King Ahaz. And in chapter 7, Isaiah gives or confronts Ahaz with a threat of judgment and salvation. And this is where we begin to see the foreshadowing of the Christmas story. Chapter 7, verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. This is the faithful assurance of the promise in Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born. Who is that child? Emmanuel, God with us. God has remained faithful and continues to remain faithful to the covenant that he has made with David. And it is this same promise that so many years later is given to the Virgin Mary by the angel Gabriel. It says, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. God's faithful 
assurance. The second line is, to us a son is given. And this statement is that of God's wonderful gift. Jesus Christ, the baby in the manger, the most wonderful of gifts. We give and receive gifts at Christmas time, right? It's a tradition that we've practiced for uh, as long as we can remember. And one of those practices, or the reason we do this practice, is because of Christ, because of the giving of his son. Isaiah says, to us a son is given. We can't miss that. And that's something that's reiterated in the Gospel of John. John 3.16, many of you may know this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So this is what we should be making central to our Christmas tradition of gift giving. It's not about what you give or receive, but about the spirit in which you do so. Now, admittedly, our culture has probably taken advantage of this in many ways and maybe even manipulated it in certain ways. But I'm not trying to say we shouldn't give gifts. I'm just saying we should make sure we're doing it in the right spirit. Now, in this Christmas season, then, the love language that God is demonstrating is gift-giving. Maybe many of you are familiar with the popular Christian book, The Five Love Languages. Five love languages in which how we demonstrate love with one another, especially with our loved ones. And that's who we give gifts with. So the, one of those languages is the giving and receiving of gifts. And you can go online, you can take an assessment, it's about 30 questions, and it will tell you what your, or how your five love languages are ranked. And I have taken this, and admittedly, gift giving is number five for me. It is the lowest one. It is just not how I tend to prioritize gift giving or receiving. But the key here is that we make sure we understand what a gift is. Because in a lot of ways, our own insecurities and culture have, have shaped that, how we interpret this practice. And for example, and hopefully I'm not the only one who this has happened to, but a few years ago, I received a gift from someone, and I didn't have anything to give back to them. I wasn't expecting to get a gift from this person. And if you've been in that situation, you probably remember how you responded. And I, I can tell you that I panicked. I panicked because I didn't have some way of reciprocating this. So I'm not proud of this. And you can probably imagine what I did, right? I went out before the next time I saw this person and I got them a gift. Now the part that I'm really not proud of is the fact that they got me a gift card to a local grocery store. You maybe see where I'm going with this. I took that gift card. I went to that local grocery store. And I bought that person their favorite dessert, which I knew came from that local grocery store. And gave it to them at a staff event, so it didn't seem like it was, it seemed nonchalant. It wasn't in return for their gift. That was not really in the spirit of gift giving, right? What I failed to understand in my shame and guilt was that this person was expressing love to me by giving me this gift. They weren't necessarily expecting anything in return, yet I felt shame and guilt about not having something for them. But gift giving is not about reciprocity. It's about expressing love. And that is what God does for us when he gives us Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. 
Now, the other thing that we have to understand is that this gift is freely given. That God has not set parameters that must be met before he gives us this gift, right? That God does not say we have to get it right before he gives us this gift. Because if he did so, he'd still be waiting. Because we don't get it right. No, God comes to us freely out of his unconditional love. And Paul in his letter to the Ephesians captures this, saying that we gratify the desires of our own flesh, that we chase after our own desires. And what we really deserve is wrath. But instead, what God shows us is love. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And it is by grace we have been saved. A grace that is freely given. A gift that Paul calls an incomparable and unspeakable gift. The great 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon says this of Christ as a gift. He says, how often you hear people speak about Christ and his salvation as though they were the reward of merit, as though we did something by which to win his divine favor. If they do not teach that salvation comes through our own doings, yet according to them it is the effects of our feelings and our experiences, somehow or other, according to this common notion, we must get fit to receive God's gift, and thus what comes to us is more our due than an alms of heavenly charity." I hesitate not to say then that this teaching flies in the teeth of the entire word of God. Everywhere in the scriptures, the great word is not merit, but grace. Not deserving, but receiving freely the great mercy of our God. You see, we do not earn our salvation. We do not earn this gift. It is freely given as a wonderful gift from God. But this is only part of what it means that Jesus is a gift. Because in order for a gift to be given, it must be properly received. Not received in the way I received a gift. Because gifts really can be received properly and improperly. The appropriate response is with gratitude, not ingratitude. Now, have you ever received a gift and maybe thought, why? (laughs) Why did you get me this? But then it just so came to pass that that was exactly what you needed. Have you ever had that happen? You see, this is what happened to the first century Jews and the Pharisees, especially those who rejected Jesus. They were expecting a savior. They were expecting a Messiah. Just not Jesus. They believed that all of their problems could be solved if the savior were to ride in, to overthrow the Roman Empire, to put down the Gentiles and to give them power and authority. That if they received that, then they could take matters into their own hands. But what they failed to see was that what they really needed was a savior for the problems on the inside, not with other people. Because the truth of the matter is we all probably want some form of power or authority. 
or at least something that gives us that feeling of self-worth, right? Something that gives us value. Maybe it's your job, maybe it's your level of education or accomplishments in your past or your trophy case, or maybe it's just likes on social media. Who knows what it may be? But whatever it may be, we all have these desires that tend to drive our self-perception. And for the Pharisees, it was their religiosity, it was power, it was authority, it was them praying on the street corners and being seen by others to see how righteous they were. You see, we crave the desires of the flesh. We crave those things that we think are going to make us feel worthy. And then when we don't attain those or we realize that they don't quite keep the tank full all the time, we kind of spiral or we go into these uh, uh, modes of self-deprecation and criticism. We're constantly in this battle of trying to make ourselves feel worthy, trying to prove ourselves. And in doing so, we're somehow ignoring the message of the Christmas story. That this son is indeed freely given. But when we stop fighting for approval or stop trying to earn this gift, make ourselves worthy of it, when we realize that there's nothing we can do except to receive this gift in faith that is first freely given, that we respond in faith, That changes things, doesn't it? It frees us up from so much of the time and energy that we waste trying to meet expectations, whether of ourselves or from others, that just simply aren't attainable. It doesn't matter how righteous you are, how worthy you think you are, how much you think you've earned, we will never be worthy. And to think something like that is actually to reject this gift. But when we look beyond those labels, when we look beyond the temporary satisfactions that maybe our vices or desires give us, it's then that we can begin to see Jesus, even in his weakness as a baby, may not be what we expected but it's absolutely what we need. A gift of God's wondrous love and grace. And when we discover that, it's in that freedom that we are able to receive the final statement from Isaiah about the promise. The third line of verse 6 says, the government will be on his shoulders. And this final statement is about God's everlasting joy. Why is the government being on Jesus' shoulders about everlasting joy? First of all, I want to make sure we don't get too hung up on the word government here. Because the Hebrew word actually for government is misra, which is literally translated as rule or dominion. And if we were to look at a number of different translations, we would see that this word is interpreted in different ways. For instance, one says all authority will be placed on his shoulders. Another says the running of the world will be placed on his shoulders. So I don't want to get hung up on that word. What I want to make sure we talk about is Jesus is ruler. And this is what the rest of verse 6 and verse 7 go on to describe. 
Jesus is given titles like Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And these just begin to try and describe the amazingness and the awesomeness of Jesus and his kingdom. And think about this. If if you've ever been someone who's been in a position of power or authority, however small or minute that may be, you've had responsibilities in that role, right? Something that has been placed on your shoulders. And oftentimes those responsibilities get heavy. They get burdensome. They start to weigh us down, stress us out. But no matter those responsibilities that we have, Jesus takes those away from us. If we look at one more verse, Isaiah moves forward in chapter 22, verse 22. He says, I will place on his shoulders the keys to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. This verse is actually referenced twice in the gospel. Both times it's a foreshadowing of Jesus holding the keys to the kingdom. So Isaiah's statement here about the government being on his shoulders is pointing again to that responsibility that is placed on Jesus. And you know what? It can be. It can be because he is all of those things. He is wonderful. He is mighty. He is everlasting. Have you you ever heard the saying or seen it on a bumper sticker, God will never give you more than you can handle? While I recognize that this is meant to be comforting, it just simply isn't true. Because the fact of the matter is that God does give us more than we can handle. See, so often we try to bear the bur- our own burdens. We try to take on the world ourselves, but, but we can't. We can't. So it's not that he gives us only what we can handle, but it's that when he gives us more than we can handle so that we lean into him, so that we learn to rely on him. Because the Bible says when we surrender ourselves to him, his power is made perfect and his power makes us strong because he can handle what we are given because he is given to take the weight of that world off of our shoulders. This is why Jesus in the gospel can call out to us and say, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. Because he is wonderful, mighty, and everlasting. He invites us to be a part of his kingdom when we respond in faith and with thanksgiving. I want to close with a story and it's a Christmas story. When an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds in a field nearby, the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws, lying in a manger. And the shepherds, 
drop what they're doing. They leave their livelihood behind, their fields and their flocks, and they run to Bethlehem. When they get there, they find this child, just as the angel had told them. And it says, seeing this child, they recognized the value of the gift and they told everybody that they could. And they went back to their fields with joy, praising and glorifying God for all the things that he had said, all the things that he had promised were real, just as they had been told. How do we respond to the gift of Jesus? To the Savior born from humble beginnings in a barn, in a trough for animals? Do we recognize the value of this gift? Do we receive it with joy and thanksgiving the way the shepherds do? The one who came to give us everlasting joy. The joy that we so often sing about this time of year. Because there's many who didn't. There's many who still don't. One of my favorite Christmas songs is Noel by Chris Tomlin and Lauren Dago. And the chorus says, Noel, Noel, come and see what God has done. Noel, Noel, the story of amazing love, the light of the world given for us, Noel. A child born for you and me. Son of God, freely given. A ruler who bears the weight of the world on his shoulder for all people. the promise of the gospel found in the Christmas story. Emmanuel, God with us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, come. Come and see what God has done in a stable in Bethlehem. Come hear the amazing story of God's love and grace. And receive the gift that is the light of the world given for us. Glorifying, praising his wonderful name with joy and thanksgiving. Because Jesus Christ is the gift of the gospel. And the gift that truly does change everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise you made to us all those years ago. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who you sent to us as a wonderful gift that we might receive him in your infinite mercy and boundless grace and that we might be reconciled to you so that we may have that everlasting joy that can only be found in you and your kingdom. And we are eternally grateful for the wonderful Christmas story of your amazing love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you.
And may the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.